keep your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Uh, If you're new to making your way around the Bible, that's just fine. You came on a good Sunday. Revelation is just right at the back. Just go all the way to the back. You'll find it. The big numbers printed on the pages are the chapters. The small numbers and superscript are the verses. We are in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Uh, As I was thinking about uh, this text this week and the implications of it, I was reminded of uh, one of the maybe most fun Disney movies to sing along to, The Little Mermaid. And uh, it's fun. Everybody knows the songs. Little Mermaid. There, Ariel, the little red-headed mermaid, we learn, wants so badly to be a part of the world of the landlubbers, of humans, that she will go to great lengths to make that a possibility for herself. Little Ariel wants so badly to be a part of our world. She just wants to be draped up and dripped out with human legs and human dresses. Izzy, I used it. That's some of my new slang I learned. Draped up, dripped out. That means wearing a nice outfit. These are the words, these are the words they use. I, Ariel wants so badly to be human, just to, to have a share in what it is to live on land. And by the way, there's Eric with his you know, dark hair and his brooding personality and all of that sort of thing. She wants so badly to have what humans have that she will go to Ursula the sea witch to have a spell cast upon her, to give her legs, to make her human, with the hopes of maybe staying human. But, but even there, it's not guaranteed. The, the final results aren't, aren't certain. She's got three days as a human to make Prince Eric fall in love with her and grace her with love's true kiss so that she might stay human forever. And as Ursula tells her, if it doesn't happen that way, not a big deal. It only costs you everything. You'll just become a little little uh, seaweed in my cavern of seaweeds, and, uh, and I steal your voice and maybe your soul. It's kind of questionable. don't really know what's going on there. But it's a terrible situation. Ariel, in all of her desperation, in all of her desire to be human, gives up everything, concedes her whole life as a princess of King Triton just for a taste of what it would be to be human, just for a sense of, of fitting in, of having what someone else has. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, as we read, Jesus speaks to the church at Pergamum. And he commends the church at Pergamum for their faithfulness in the face of persecution. But he also condemns them for the sin of compromise, for the sin of concession and toleration of false teaching, with the hopes of being better approved by those in the world. He says to the church at Pergamum and to every church, to every Christian who reads these words, that to those who persevere, to those who conquer, to those who are victorious in truth and faithfulness to Jesus only, he promises intimate and abundant fellowship with him. The main idea of Jesus' words to the church at Pergamum is this, beware compromise. Beware compromise. Now here we're not talking about compromise in the sense of you know, two people giving up uh, maybe strongly held positions for the sake of moving forward, like in a marriage, you know, a husband gives up something, wife gives up something, and they go eat wherever the wife wanted to go for dinner. 
We're not talking about that kind of compromise. We're talking about the kind of compromise that, that, that puts something at danger. Like when you think of like infrastructure pieces, like bridges. If a bridge's structure is compromised, that's not a bridge you want to drive on, right? That's the kind of compromise we're talking about here. A weakening of the stance of the believers at Pergamum such that their faith is in grave danger. As we heed Jesus' warning to beware compromise, let us search our own hearts and repent of any desire in us to give up love of Christ to be loved by the world, to concede on what it is to know Christ and to be known by Him, all of the rewards of faithfulness to Jesus. Let us search our hearts for and repent of any desire to be loved by the world and so give up some of what our faithfulness to Jesus requires. So let's look at the text this morning. First of all, verses 12 and 13. We look here at Jesus, the Son of Man, and the Pergamenes. That's what people who live in Pergamum are called, Pergamenes. I wish they were called Pergamanians or Pergamaniacs. I much prefer that, but Pergamenes is the appropriate term. Let's learn, what do we know about the Pergamenes? What do we know about, uh, about Pergamum? Well, Pergamum as a city is even more ancient than Smyrna. Last week we saw Jesus speaking to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was a city that had been around uh, or been occupied since at least 700 B.C. Pergamum is even older than that. Uh, There is some archaeological evidence to indicate that people have lived in the area of Pergamum since at least 2,000 B.C., which would make it about a 4,000-year-old city now. Pergamum was the capital city of Asia Minor, most of what is now modern-day Turkey. It was the, the Roman capital city of that area. It was itself the first city in the Roman Empire to have a temple dedicated to a living emperor. That emperor was Tiberius. He was the emperor during uh, uh, the better part of Jesus's earthly ministry, and particularly toward the end of his life. In Pergamum, though, there were also temples, not just to Tiberius, but also to several uh, Greek gods. You have a temple to Athena there, a temple to Zeus, a temple to Asclepius, who is the god of, uh, of medicine. Very likely, the church in Pergamum probably grew out of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Paul spent about three years in Ephesus preaching the gospel, uh, pointing people to faith in Jesus. And very likely, his ministry there in Ephesus was probably what led to the, the planting of the church in Smyrna, which was just north of Ephesus, and even in Pergamum, which is a bit further north still. Jesus is addressing the church in this city. And as Jesus introduces himself, as he uh, tells the church uh, who it is that's speaking to them, he does it uh, in a different way, again, to the church of Pergamum, as he di- uh, different from the church of Smyrna and the church at Ephesus. Here now, Jesus introduces himself as the one with the sharp two-edged sword. You'll remember this image from Revelation chapter 1, verse 16 where we read John's description of the risen Son of Man, Jesus, as he appears to John in this vision. John says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The one who speaks to the church at Pergamum is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. This is the sword that comes out of his mouth. This is his word of judgment that divides between truth and falsehood and which decrees either rewards or punishment. Jesus is the one who divides by what he says, who speaks directly to the heart of the matter, who renders a verdict like only a just judge can. 
And what does Jesus, the just judge, with the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, what does he say to the Pergamum, to the, to the church in Pergamum? He says to them in verse 13, I know where you dwell. To the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your works. I know all the things you do. To the church at Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. To the church in Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. And I know that it's where Satan's throne is. It is true that Satan is at work at the church in Ephesus. It is true that that Satan has been influential in Smyrna. But Pergamum is a place where Satan's throne room is. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne exists, where Satan lives. Now, let's not get too literal here. The symbolic language of Satan's throne and Pergamum communicates not that he has literally the, not that the headquarters of hell are not in Pergamum, but it is to say that Satan has a, a, an intense presence and concentrated activity in this city. So heavy is the influence of the demonic in Pergamum that Jesus can say, this is where Satan dwells. This is where he lives. And by the way, Pergamines, you live there too. The idea of Satan's throne being in Pergamum is very likely linked to the presence of the Roman government and to the imperial cult, the worship of emperors like Tiberius that were there and going on in Pergamum, but also to the fact that uh, a man by the name of Antipas, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ, one of his faithful servants, he says, a man named Antipas was put to death in Pergamum for his faith. One tradition, we don't know really anything about Antipas beyond this from Scripture, but one Christian tradition says that Antipas died for his faith by being roasted alive in a bronze bull. So when Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan dwells, where my faithful servant Antipas was killed among you in the place where Satan lives, you know, the Pergamines, are, they, they, have, they have intimate knowledge and intimate understanding of what that means to be in a place of intense satanic activity. I know where you live. Jesus also knows that in the intensity of Satan's influence in this city where, where faithful servants of Christ have been killed, that the Pergamine Christians have not denied their faith or identity with Christ. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. In the middle of the place where Satan's influence, where where demonic activity is at its peak in the Roman Empire, you have not let go of being known as my followers. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. This is an encouragement from the Lord. The, The Pergamene church holds fast to the name of Christ, being identified with Him. They hold fast to His faith. That is the dependence that they have in Him alone for salvation. And they are unwilling to let go from being known as followers of Jesus, the crucified and risen Savior, the one who judges justly, the one with a sharp uh, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, commends the Pergamene church for keeping his name in a city with a reputation for killing people who kept his faith in the past. You have, not, you, you have held fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even when... My faithful servant witness, or my faithful witness Antipas, was put to death among you. Jesus and the Pergamines, this relationship, what Jesus knows about his church here, reminds us today 
that Jesus is aware of all the challenges that you face. Jesus knows where the church, that, that the church in Pergamum lives in a place with intense spiritual darkness, with deadly demonic activity going on. He knows all that they face. And if Jesus, the omniscient Savior, knows all the things that the church in Pergamum faced, friends, he knows everything that you face too. Do you find yourself in a situation that feels to you like you are in the hotbed of Satan's activity? Perhaps you're regularly shamed for your faith by your supervisors at work or maybe by friends at school. Maybe you've, passed, you've been passed over by an adoption agency because of your stated faith in Christ. It might be that you've lost your job or you've missed out on a promotion because you're unwilling as a Christian to take part in activities and practices that would be contrary to your Christian conscience. Perhaps the Lord will take you as a missionary friend, a, pro, a proclaimer of the gospel, to a place where your life and the lives of those that you will preach to will be threatened because of the gospel. If that is the case, take heart. Be encouraged. Jesus knows all of this. He knows where you dwell. He isn't ignoring it. He isn't punishing you by putting you in hard places. In Christ's divine wisdom and knowledge, He intends every challenge of the spiritually dark places that we live and the spiritually dark circumstances that we may encounter to result in our personal spiritual growth, the depth of our faith in Him, and to result in His glory as our faith is purified in the testing fire of challenge and trial. Rest your heart, dear child of the King. He is not ignorant of your hardship. Jesus knows where the Pergamines dwell. He knows where you dwell too. Take heart. Now, while Jesus has something to commend the church in Pergamum for, you hold fast my faith. You didn't deny, you hold fast my name. You didn't deny my faith. This is a good thing, Pergamine church. He turns very quickly to give them also a harsh word of condemnation, a strong word of uh, uh, conviction, uh, a striking word of correction to the church in Pergamum. Because while they've held fast to the name of Christ, they have also brought about themselves a problem. And that problem in the church is the problem of compromise. We see it in verses 14 through 16. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The Pergamene church is guilty of the problem of compromise. I don't think it's ever a good thing when Jesus says to you as a Christian or you as a church, I have a few things against you. Even in my own mind, I'm going, just a few? Maybe I'm getting off easy. Um, He has a few things against the church here, and all of them are really related to the matter of compromise, related to the matter of making concessions on what it is to be a Christian in order to be better approved of by society, in order to be more acceptable or to have a better reputation among people who don't follow Jesus. That word compromise means to settle differences by mutual concession. If we all just, if we can just two people who, two parties that are in conflict with each other, if we can just give up a little bit of the things that we hold most strongly to, maybe we can find a middle way. And this is precisely what the Christians in Pergamum have done. They've thought, if I just give up a little bit, then, then I can find a middle way in society. I can find a, a way to get along without conflict in this city that kills Christians. 
I want to be, be a follower of Jesus. I don't want to be roasted alive in a bronze bull. What do I need to do to keep both of those things, right, to make both of those things true? This compromise is apparent in the church at Pergamum by their attempt to hold on to two things, opposing things at the same time. On the one hand, remember, Jesus says, he commends them for holding fast to his name. But his problem is that there are some who also hold to the teaching of Balaam and to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Don't miss that, the, re- the repetition of that language there. Holding fast to his name, but also holding to the teaching of Balaam. I, I think of those world's strongest man competitions where they have the, uh, I, I don't know what it is, it's like the pillar hold or whatever. you got two large like granite columns with chains coming off and handles on each, and the world's strongest man proves his strength by, by holding these two teetering columns by these chains for as long as he can until his hands give way or his arms are ripped out of his shoulder sockets, whichever comes first. But that's a picture of, of, of really what the Pergamum church is doing. They're trying to hold on to Jesus and they're trying to hold on to these teachings of the world that will make them more acceptable to society and all the while, spiritually, they're being ripped in half. Jesus calls out the false things that they're holding to. He gives most detail to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and commit sexual immorality. Some of you remember Balaam, that figure from the Old Testament. He comes to us uh, in Numbers 22 through 24. There in Numbers 22 and 24, Israel, the people of Israel, having been delivered out of slavery in Egypt and made their way through the wilderness, are now at the edge of the promised land, and they've come upon the region of the Midianites and the Moabites of Midian and Moab. And there Midian and Moab, seeing the impending threat of the Israelites, knowing that the Lord is with them, blessing all that they do, giving them the the land wherever it is that they should go, the Moabites and the Midianites form a pact in order to press back against the Israelites. The king of Moab, man by the name of Balak, he's mentioned here in Revelation 2. Balak goes about hiring a pagan prophet by the name of Balaam. Balaam's job as a hired prophet by Balak, is to curse the people of Israel. To take all of his, whatever strings he can pull with whatever gods are out there and speak a word of curse, a word of cursing, upon the people of Israel so they might not overtake the Moabites and the Midianites. Now, the story of Balaam is a funny one. Uh, It takes a lot of twists and turns. It's rather humorous, humorous. There's a talking donkey at one point. But the short of it is this. Every time Balaam opens his mouth to curse Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the universe, the God of the people of Israel, causes Balaam only to speak blessing. Such that against all of his, all of his uh, better judgment, better knowledge, other intentions, no matter what Balaam tries to do, he can't but bless the people of Israel. And it's all God's doing. And so the people of Israel are blessed through this pagan prophet. And they overtake the land of Midian and Moab. But we read in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, these words. There's a story of victory. The people of Israel, God is giving them the promised land. But along the way, we read this, Numbers 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. 
So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Baal is a word for the, uh, it's a word that means master. It's kind of a generic word for, 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 uh, for the gods of, of the pagans. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So God blesses his people against the, the other intentions of this pagan prophet, and yet, even as his people take over Midian, take over Moab, they also don't maintain their faithfulness to the Lord. The men of Israel go about uh, marrying and entering into relationships with Moabite women who are pagan women, and these Moabite women entice those Israelite men to go to their idol sacrifices, to their worship of false gods, and the Israelite men say, sounds good. So one victory, taking over the land, is followed by a spiritual defeat. Spiritual defeat of compromise. Spiritual defeat of giving up faithfulness to the Lord in order to have good relationships with pretty Moabite women. Numbers chapter 31 verse 16 tells us that it was Balaam's idea, this pagan, pagan prophet's idea, to get Balak the king of Moab, to tempt the Israelites to compromise their faithfulness to the Lord by taking part in idol worship. There's some sort of scheme concocted. The scripture doesn't give us details on this, but it may have been something like Balaam going to Balak and saying, listen, man, there's nothing. I can't, I can't curse these people. Every time I open my mouth, the Lord makes me bless them. So we need to go about this a different way. If you want to overcome them, just do this. Send all your prettiest women to attract all of their men and bring their men to sacrifice at uh, the, the altars to Baal, and that'll probably undo it too. The figurative image here in Revelation 2 of Balaam's teaching is to imply that some people in the church at Pergamum have manipulated or convinced the Christians in that church to take part in the pagan worship of false gods. And we know in Pergamum there were many temples to just such gods to take part in offering sacrifices to the emperor as though he were a god, while also thinking they could remain faithful to Christ. There were some in the church saying, you can, you can wear the badge of Christian, you can call yourself a follower of Jesus, and you can live in this society peacefully so long as you worship at the shrines to Athena and the emperor and Zeus and Asclepius. Not a big deal. You can be a Christian so long as you take part in our worship to these other gods too. Likewise, Jesus says, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, there's not a lot of information about the Nicolaitans. We looked a little bit at them in a little more detail a couple of weeks ago in Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus, but they're mentioned here also. And in this text, in this letter to the church at Pergamum, the teaching of the Nicolaitans is identified with or likened to the teaching of Balaam. Likewise, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The point here is that the, the teaching of Balaam, the teaching of the Nicolaitans are, are somehow similar to each other. They're telling Christians, you can be a Christian and you can call yourself a Christian. You can hold on to the name of Jesus. That's just fine. So long as you also go to the temple of Zeus with us and kill a cow and eat the meat there and take part in all the festivities and the feasts and the singing and the other stuff that happens there too. You can have your Jesus so long as you worship with us. Compromise. Cultures are constantly calling for the church of Jesus Christ to compromise, to make concessions on its convictions in order to be more tolerated by the culture. Or else Christians are regularly tempted ourselves to compromise on our convictions in order to appear more acceptable to society. 
the compromise that is easiest, or the temptation to compromise is easiest for churches like ours, theologically conservative evangelical churches like ours. We see the temptation to compromise coming most clearly and easily from the, the left, sort of political or ideological left in our nation. And the political and ideological left in our nation says things like, you can keep your Christianity, that's fine, so long as you're willing to let go of your outdated, heteronormative, bigoted ideals about sexuality and marriage and gender. You can keep your Christianity, not a problem, so long as you give up all these acts of patriarchal oppression like advocating for abortion restrictions. You can keep your Christianity, that's fine, so long as you admit that the Bible's description of God is just one more description among countless descriptions of God in the world that are all equally valid. You can speak your truth so long as you don't tell me that it defines my truth. You can keep your Christianity so long as you don't try to evangelize anyone. Just keep it to yourself. That's the easy compromise for us to see. And let's be honest, that's the easy compromise for us to pile on to as well and to point our fingers at and to call out and say, don't be like those people. Don't make that compromise. Push hard against the left. But may I say a hard thing to us this morning, church? Okay, I'm going to anyway. <laughs> I didn't think I'd get myself into trouble this quickly in Revelation. I thought we'd get to the juicier parts first, or we, we wait till we get there. My resignation letter is ready if I need it. The compromise that's easy for us to see is the one that comes from the left. The compromise that's much harder to see, but just as deadly and dangerous to our faith, is a compromise to our faith that comes from the ideological and political right in our society. Get ready to be mad. The ideological and political right in our society says things like this, tempts us to compromise this way. We'll help you keep your Christianity in this ever-changing, quickly-changing world that wants to rip it away from you and cancel you forever will help you keep it so long as you vote Republican and only Republican down the ticket every time. No questions asked. We'll help you keep your Christianity so long as we can use the name of Jesus in terms like evangelical and, and, and we can hold up props like the Bible at photo ops to show that we're on your side. Let us use all of the things that define you as political props so we can get votes and we'll help you keep your Christianity. We'll help you keep your Christianity so long as you don't say anything derogatory about the literal golden statue of our candidate that we're propping up and rolling through the halls of our convention rallies. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there's a literal golden statue of Donald Trump that gets paraded through concert halls and venues and hotel boardrooms and, and conference centers that people are following with devotion as though it is a God and this is not a joke. The right, the political and ideological right says we'll help you creep your Christianity. Just vote for this guy and never say anything bad about him even though the words that come out of his mouth and the character of his life is so anti-Christian. We'll help you keep your Christianity so long as you vote for candidates who are willing to insult and demean their opponents and who will do anything to win because after all, as Christians, don't you want to win? Doesn't the Bible say overcome? Doesn't it say be victorious? Listen, vote for us. We'll get that for you. 
Come on board with us. We'll help you there. We got your back, Christians. It'll only cost your soul. It'll only cost all your convictions about who Christ is and what the fruit of the Spirit looks like in the life of a real believer. It'll only cost you every conviction that the Word of God is actually authoritative. If you'll just subvert it to our political platform, we'll help you. We'll help you be able to keep reading it on Sunday. Pastor J.D. Greer, former, uh, recent former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, said in a sermon, convention sermon last summer, he said, when the church gets into bed with politics, left or right, friends, when the church gets into bed with politics, the church gets pregnant. And the offspring of that union looks nothing like our Father in heaven. That's what I said, too. This is what compromise looks like in our culture today. And the church of Jesus Christ in America has a severe compromise problem. Not just to the left, but to the right also. As Christians, we want so badly to fit in and to be liked or become powerful or maybe even just to be left alone that we have forgotten that to be Christian is in many ways to be politically homeless in this world. If you feel like you have a home in our current political establishment in the United States, friend, it's probably time to check your heart and your allegiance to Jesus. Understand this, Jesus is not on the side of the left or the right. He sits in power and authority over all of it. The gospel in Jesus Christ is is not a political football that gets passed up and down from one side of the political football field to the other. No, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, stands in authority over all of it. Beware of compromising your faith, Christian, for the sake of avoiding being thought of as strange or weird. Can I tell you something? If you, as a follower of Jesus faithful, devoted follower of Christ above all. If you are thought of as weird or strange in society, if you think you're weird because of the way that you follow Jesus, know that you're in good company. In the company of saints, millions upon millions of saints who have followed Jesus faithfully in difficult places over the last two millennia. The city of Austin, Texas, 25 years ago, started to see some growth. Austin's the capital of the city. Started to see some economic growth there. Major companies moving in, wanting to move their headquarters there to Austin. Austin has a famous uh, uh, kind of music scene and, and art scene going on there. But these corporations that were moving in to Austin were building their high rises and they were changing the culture of Austin away from that uh, a hotbed, if you will, of creative expression and uniqueness in the land of Texas. And the citizens of Austin started a grassroots campaign with a motto, three words long, put it on bumper stickers, put it in windows, put it all over the place to press back against the infiltration of of corporate America, if you will, and how it was changing the culture of their city. Do you know what that three phrase, three, three, three word motto was? Keep Austin weird. Keep it weird. What makes Austin, Austin is the uniqueness of this place, the the music that comes out of here, the arts that come out of here. And as all of these big box stores and corporate headquarters move in, we find that part of our culture, it's dissipating, it's going away. We're not what Austin used to be. Keep Austin weird. 
Friends, can I say that Jesus says to the church in Pergamum and to every saint who will listen to it, keep Christianity weird. Keep it strange. Keep it unique. And not because it's weird, although we believe in a crucified and risen Savior. Like, guys, that's just, that's strange. That's different. It is. But we also believe in a God who, who, who is not just perfectly just, but is also full of mercy and grace for those who come to trust him. We believe in a, a strange God who is not like the gods of the world, who's not like the gods of pagan cultures. Christianity is weird. It is strange because it's not the kind of faith. It's not the kind of system that flows naturally out of the heart of sinful man. It's weird, but that's a good thing. It's unique because it's true. Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, don't compromise. Keep Christianity weird. And if you think, if you feel weird in the culture, keep being faithful. To the church, it compromises their faith and tolerates those who compromise faith in their gathering. Jesus says in, no, in, in, in unequivocal terms, repent repent. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Likewise, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. The only option for the one who has made concessions on the name and the faith of Jesus in order to fit in with the world, the only option for them is to leave behind the world and hold fast to Jesus with both arms once more. To recognize the tension that they are in, to let go of those false ideologies. Let go of that desire to be liked by people and hold fast with both hands to Christ alone who saves. But listen, for those who do not repent, the judge will come with the sword of his word and will divide between truth and lies. He will cut off from himself all those who try to tie his name and his faith to false gods and false religions with the cords of compromise. I will war against them with the sword of my mouth, Jesus says. For us today, friends, the significance of this text, of this warning, beware compromise to the church at Pergamum is clear. Christian, don't just watch out for compromise. Don't just watch out for for where it comes from, left, right, center, front, back, wherever it may be coming from. Don't just watch out for it. Actively root it out of your heart. And can I say that, that I need to do that too? I speak stern words about the compromise that comes from the ideological left and the ideological light in our society, or right in our society. But don't think in any way that I speak those words as one who is immune to them. They're tempting to me too. I want to be liked too. I want, I want people to respect me in the culture too. I want to be approved of and applauded and platformed because I'm a Christian. I want to have an easy life because I'm a pastor and helping to lead a church to follow Jesus. I want those things. But friends, those are not the things that Christ has for us always. Very often, He has for us to live in places that are hotbeds of spiritual darkness, not so that we can get along in that world, but so that we can stand as burning lights of gospel truth. So don't just watch out for compromise. Actively root it out of your own heart. We need, to get, we need to get used to, we need to practice asking ourselves hard questions like, do I want to be loved or accepted by the world more than I want to be faithful to Jesus? 
Do I want to be loved and accepted by the world more than I want to be faithful to Jesus? You might think that's an easy answer, an easy question to answer in church on Sunday morning, but I promise you it gets a whole lot harder Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock. What areas of my culture that are not explicitly Christian or maybe anti-Christian, what areas of my culture appeal most strongly to me to compromise on my faith in Christ? Do I want to be accepted, more accepted by people? So, and so I give up on some biblical convictions so that I can have easier conversations with my friends at work? Or perhaps, am I, am I so angry about the fact that I'm not number one in my society, that Christ is not revered in my culture, that I'm willing to align myself with people whose character looks nothing like Christ just for the promise of an easier life if they get into office? We need to ask ourselves hard questions like, what convictions am I currently compromising on today in order to get ahead in the world? What things are there that Christ has explicitly called His church to do that we have given up or set aside or flatly ignored and disobeyed in order to get a promotion? When you ask ourselves this question regularly, what, what matters to me more really? My standard of living or my right standing with God? What if to be a Christian means all our possessions are taken away from us? What if to be a faithful Christian means you can't get a loan to buy a house? What if to be a faithful Christian means you can't find a job that that pays you enough to maintain the standard of living that you have now? What matters more? Your 2,000 square foot, four bed, two bathroom house, two car garage and a backyard with room enough for your dog to dig holes in every day? Speaking about my own life here, what matters more? That comfort or a right standing with God? We need to ask ourselves, in what ways is our church, in what ways is First Baptist Church of West Albuquerque most likely to compromise or to concede in order to fit in? Maybe the concession is as simple as not speaking about the gospel Monday through Saturday with people we encounter. Maybe the concession is, I, I, don't, really want to, I don't really want to give up my beliefs to get along with the ideological left, because I, I, I want to hold fast to Jesus. But, and, and, and I also don't, I don't really want to mess around with these people on the right, because I really don't like what they're all about. I'm just going to shut up and stay quiet. That's a concession too. Choosing not to speak about Christ, choosing not to be publicly faithful, is a concession. It is a choice not to be publicly faithful. In a lot of this warning that Jesus gives to the church, Christians, don't just watch out for compromise. Actively root it out from your heart. Wherever you find it, repent. But praise God, Jesus doesn't leave us with that stern word of warning without any encouragement. In the last verse of this section, verse 17, Jesus promises reward to his faithful saints. Revelation 2.17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which means, not just if you have ears attached to your head to hear, but if you have a heart that understands what the Spirit is saying. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious, Jesus promises here two tokens of his intimate fellowship. The first is some of the hidden manna. I'll give him some of the hidden manna. 
Now, manna, if we go back again to the Old Testament, particularly to Exodus and that wilderness wandering period for the people of Israel, we learn that manna was that mysterious substance that was given by God in the night to his people as they wandered through the wilderness. And in the morning, they would wake up and see this stuff scattered all over the ground. They would pick it up. They would make uh, loaves of bread, uh, small cakes out of it to eat, to be sustained with during the day. This manna that God gave to his people in the wilderness where there was no food, is physical, this physical sustenance for them was a picture of their total need and dependence upon God. God himself says about the manna, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I'm giving you physical bread to remind, me, to remind you that what you need is fellowship with me through my word. Jesus promises to those who overcome some of the hidden manna. That fellowship with God that comes through dependence upon Him. While the world beckons believers to eat with them at the altars of idols, Jesus promises those who cling to Him a place at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. To the one who overcomes, I'll give him some of the hidden manna. To the one who overcomes, I'll give a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. That's easy to understand. This image of white stone is, is kind of hotly debated, not hotly debated, but vigorously discussed among scholars. The background for this image is, is not exactly clear, but it seems that, that this, this picture of a white stone means one of two things. In that day, often if there was a tribunal or a court was gathered together, or if there was some sort of like Senate vote or represent, representational vote, people who were in positions of authority or ability to, to cast a vote, either for a person's acquittal or condemnation or in favor or against a piece of legislation, they would cast either a white stone or a black stone. And a white stone was a stone of approval. It was a stone of acquittal. It was a vote for innocence. Other places, we, we, we know that white stones were given to people who, were, who, who conquered in the stadium or in the, the Colosseum who were winners at Olympic-type games. They would be given a white stone as a token for entry to a banquet that was reserved for dignitaries and victors. This picture of a white stone is a, a picture of Christ's vote of acquittal to the one who has been faithful to him. Christ's vindication of the innocence of the one who has trusted in him and not compromised. It is a, a token of, of his invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to that great wedding feast in eternity. And on that stone is a name written that no one knows except the one who receives it. The name that no one knows except the one who receives it, I don't believe is the name of, an in, of the individual who, who, gets the, who gets the stone. I think it's better understood as the name of Jesus written on the stone. Revelation chapter 19, verse 12, if we fast forward toward, near toward the end of Revelation, we read these words. Speaking about Jesus, the risen Son of Man, as he, comes into his, as he comes into his consummated kingdom, this world made new, ushered into the eternal state. We read this. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. This white stone with the name of Jesus written on it, that name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, that only He and those who belong to Him know. This is a symbol of Christ's acceptance and approval of the One and of His favor and fellowship to the One who holds fast to Him alone and who overcomes by not compromising. To those who hold faithful, 
to those who do not compromise on their faith, Jesus gives his intimate fellowship. I can think of only one exhortation for us as we close this letter, and that is this. In light of all that we see, this caution against compromise, the call to the church and to every person who hears this word today, whether you're a Christian or not, is this. Hold firm to Christ only. He alone is worthy. Hold firm to Him only. He alone is worthy. Friends, there's no one that deserves our praise but Jesus. There is nothing in this life worth compromising for in order to, uh, worth, worth giving up our soul in order to gain in this world. There's nothing and no one more delightful than Jesus, the Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, who died for sins, was raised again, who stands ready to raise everyone from the dead just like he was if their faith and trust is in him. There's no one that's worthy of our praise. There's no one that satisfies every one of our heart's deepest longings. There is no one that gives us purpose and meaning and mission in life but Jesus. So hold fast to him only. Only he is worthy. That great hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, wrote a hymn many years ago that's been redone or kind of uh, 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 updated recently by a group. The name of the song is Give Me Jesus. Listen to the words, and I ask you to consider, is this, is this the cry of your heart? In light of this warning against compromise, take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. But His love abides forever, through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. With my Savior watching over me, I can sing, though billows roll. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In His cross my trust shall be, until with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. Take this world and give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be. Take this world and give me Jesus. Till that day, my Lord, I see. Oh, the height and depth of mercy. Oh, the length and breadth of love. Oh, the fullness of redemption, pledge of endless life above. Take this world. My God is enough. Christian, is that the cry of your heart? In the face of all these temptations to give up, to concede, either what we know Christ says to be true, or what we know about his character. Are we willing to say the world can have all of that? I'm willing to be weird for the sake of being known by the crucified and risen Savior. Friend, you may be here this morning and your whole life has been a life of concession to things of the world and you're exhausted from it. You've gone this way and that. You've, you've followed this and that ideology or political stance or aligned yourself with this or that platform or, or movement or protest or whatever, seeking for meaning, looking for purpose, looking for something that fulfills. And on every side, you are disappointed because every single one of these ideologies and platforms and personalities fails to satisfy your heart's deepest longing. To you, I say this morning, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's the son of God who gave his sinless, perfect life as a sacrifice, as a payment for your sin so that your deepest longing, which friend, spoiler alert, is your desire to be known by God and have intimate fellowship with him. Jesus gave his life for your sins and raised it from the dead so that you could trust in him for that fellowship. Do you long for a seat at the table 
with the Son of God? Do you long for His vote of approval? That even in spite of all of your sin, He has declared you righteous and right with God. You may have it by trusting Him. Dear Christian, we who have that, let us not compromise. Let us not give up anything that we might be better liked, better approved, better appreciated by the world. There's nothing, nothing in all the world, nothing in all the world worth, worth going after, nothing in Christ worth giving up to be draped up and dripped out in the things of the world. Beware compromise, Christian. It's deadly. But come to Christ who gives you tokens of his infinite and perfect fellowship. Let's pray together.